Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. It's mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Welcome to episode 146 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thank you for downloading and listening. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, also known as the Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can start by giving as little as a dollar a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-A-E-O-N.com slash Observer's Notebook. And you can also join the ALPO. Membership begins at $18 a year. For more information, find us at www.alpo.astronomy.org. And we're also on the Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And yes, this podcast also has its own Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode. And now, episode 146. We hope you enjoy it. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to this edition of the Observer's Notebook podcast. Today, we have a very special guest as we celebrate the 25th anniversary of the ALPO, Bob Garfinkel. Welcome, Bob. Uh, can we go back for a minute? You said 25th. Didn't you mean 75? Oh, I'm sorry. I said 75. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't want to age myself that far. Yes, the <laughs> 75th anniversary of the ALPO. Welcome, Bob. Well, welcome. Hello, everybody. Yeah, I'm uh, Robert Garfinkel. I have been a member of ALPO since the late 1980s, but really my interest in astronomy goes back to when I was a kid. My when we'd come home from an outing or whatever at night, my dad would point out to point out to me the constellations and ask me later what was that, what was I observing. And when we would come home, he'd want me to point out the various constellations that were visible. So in 1963. I earned my astronomy merit badge with Boy Scouts, and also I got my eagle that year. Oh, congratulations. Always, thank you. I was always interested in the moon. I could lie in my bed, not realizing you weren't supposed to do that, look out through my bedroom window and observe the moon through my 7 by 35 binoculars. Of course, mm-hmm. uh, I, I couldn't open the window, so that was kind of crazy, but I didn't know any better in those days. <laughs> but I was always concerned about the names on the moon, all these weird names. I did have a little Tasco, you know, those little store department store telescopes with a Rand McNally map. And it had all these strange names. On it. I, mean, 
obviously I knew who Pluto, Plato was and Copernicus and uh, Archimedes and some, but there was one that always bugged me and that was Alphonsus. Hmm. You know, it's a fairly large and easy observed crater. And I would be in those obviously pre-internet days, I would try to find out who he was. And I could never find out until I went back to college a second time in the early 1990s and discovered there was a book published by the British Astronomical Association that listed all of the first list of official nomenclature names. And that was published in 1938. The um, International Astronomical Union had adopted the name in, uh, had published them in 35. They had actually adopted them in 32, but they didn't put the money up to publish the book until later. So people think they were first published in, or adopted in 35. No, they were adopted three years earlier. Ah. Anyway, I got involved with observing the sun, uh, sunspots and such, in the late 1980s. And I would send in the reports to Rick Hill, who was uh, still around. Yep. Uh, he was he was the observing recorder back then in the late 80s. And I would send in my uh, reports, photocopy the, the page and such. And I still have a bunch of those. Uh, that introduced me into Alpo. I don't remember the exact year I joined um, because I also was a member of the San Jose Astronomical Association, San Jose, California, just in case people are listening from all over. Um, and uh, I still was trying to figure out who some of these names on the moon were. In um, 1989, while I had finished up star hopping, the manuscript was at Cambridge University Press to be published. I started writing a lunar nomenclature book, and we were on the uh, Viking serenade of ship to see the July 1991 eclipse. And Harrison Schmidt was a keynote speaker. You know, Harrison Schmidt. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've met him, yeah. And so after his talk, which was very funny at the end, because he shows pictures of the launch of the LEM back off the moon, and he says, well, at moments before the takeoff, Gene Cernan asked him if he wanted to step outside and take pictures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Harrison said he would have loved to have been able to stay on the moon longer. I bet, yeah. Anyway, um, he agreed to write the introduction to my nomenclature book, which is what it was going to be, only nomenclature. Uh, later, I met um, uh, Perry Ramakles while I was at Riverside Telescope Makers Conference. And he suggested, well, let's make a larger book covering more than just the nomenclature. I was supposed to have that book uh, to him by 1999, blew way past that because I, I just kept adding stuff. And John Westfall, who was the at that time still director uh, doing the uh, JALPO, mm -hmm. his title editor, I don't think he was, he might have still been the director of ALPO, but I'm not, not sure on that if he was the executive director at that time. And we just kept adding stuff and adding stuff and adding <laughs> stuff. And the book kept growing. And finally, Perry said, now nah, let's just cancel the contract. You've, you've gone way beyond what I was expecting. And people aren't interested in moon books. Well, I told uh, Perry, you know, when I try to buy a book on the internet, they're all snapped up right away. People still very much interested in moon books. Right. So, um, in 1994, Star Hopping was published. Um, the book has sold over 14,000 copies now. Fantastic. And in uh, 97, 
Cambridge came out with a uh, second printing of hardback and a paperback at the same time, which when I talked to Simon Mitten, my editor then, he said they rarely ever do that at Cambridge. They were just really impressed with the book. And uh, now, how did how did you become an author? How did I become an author? Yeah, I mean, what 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 have you always been interested in writing, or was that well? Uh, going back into the dark ages, I was an auto mechanic for thirteen years. Okay, had my own uh, gas station uh, f- for a while in the late seventies, and we I was partners with a the father of one of my high school friends, and we sold the business in nineteen eighty. About 10 years later, I drove by that corner, and it was a Starbucks. (laughs) Texaco owned the land. Uh, We owned the the business part, but Texaco we paid rent to. And I guess they sold the building to Starbucks because the gas gas station was gone. What had been a cut-rate gas station across from us was now a Chevron station. And another gas station is now Airport Appliance. It's a big appliance store. And it still has in the get in the parking lot. The I lose my voice a little bit. That's because of some strokes I've had. Okay. Um, they still had the islands for the gas pumps in the middle of their parking lot. Oh my! So anyway, um, while I was in practically dying of the flu on Christmas '96, package came from Australia, and my wife said, "Now what did you buy?" <laughs> and it was an offer to write the star hopping part of a sequel to a David Levy book called Skywatching. Right. Um, this was a company that, what we call a packager, they put together authors and writers and whatnot, and pictures and everything, for a company that wants to publish a book. In this case, it was a combination of Time Life and the Nature Company. And so we only had a few months to write my, you know, my part of the Star Hopping book. Will Terrian did the maps, and then I was... To, to write up about the stars in, on the map, the star okay. album. Uh, that book has been um, translated into German and Spanish as well. I have no idea how much it has sold. I haven't been in contact with the Australian company in years. Um, and every time I go to bookstores, I find different color versions of the cover. Or hmm. at one, one time, they put the two books together in a single volume um, that, I, that I came across. Okay, now now going back to your beginning of your writing, was that your first published work, or what, what was? Well, I wrote, I published some short stories and things like that. Started to write, you know, the great American novel, and <laughs> um, while I was still had the gas station, I just didn't feel I wanted to be sixty five years old and still fixing people's cars. I hear you. Um, so I started to write a book about Agent Orange, and okay. which was the herbicide used in Vietnam. Right. And um, I completed the novel. I was starting to send it out. And one agent thought I was writing a spy novel in which my spy was named Agent Orange. He had no <laughs> idea what the herbicide was. Another another agent thought I was rewriting the Vietnam War. And I was going to write to him and said, have you ever heard of Robert Ludlum? Because he's rewritten books on the end of World War II over and over and over again. But I uh, I wasn't that stupid to write back to him. I just the hell with it. Um, that book never. I just have a stack of rejection letters. I had an agent, and she was unable to sell it at that time. So I continued to write some fiction, uh, short stories, and such. One of my short stories was the cover story for an international uh, short story book 
called Seedling, which was their youth, young adult book. And they um, made some pictures based on my book. They drew, you know, like not a cartoon, but, you know, uh, drawings. And that was on a cover of that particular issue. And I won a couple of college writing contest awards and stuff like that. But uh, that's still, I still would like to crack into the, the fiction world. But in the meantime, um, in 1998, I was elected a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. So I'm a FRAS. Okay. Uh, F-R-A-S. But the real thing, as far as Alpo is concerned, in 2004, I went to Alcala, Florida to meet with Jose Oliveras. Jose and I, we had known each other at Chabot uh, oh. in Oakland. He okay. was the head astronomer at that time. And he moved to Alcala because his wife had family there. And I went there to see, the, to, to view the end of the uh, transit of Venus. Uh, friends like John Westfall went to Egypt and almost died at 116 mm -hmm. degree temperatures, um, even though they were in the shade. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he said they were they were miserable. Anyway, Jose at that time was the book review editor for Jalpo, and he wanted to retire. And so he basically turned the job over to me, and Alpo accepted me as the new book review editor. So that's, I've been the editor since 2004. And speaking of that, I would really love to have members submit book reviews to me um, to review and to edit and then publish in Jalpo. Uh, there's no charge and there's no no fee. Main thing is, you know, you you've either bought the book or somebody's sent it to you. I receive books every once in a while from publishers, and they endeavor to uh, review their book. In fact, right now, I've received from the Washington D.C. Map Society a book by Francis Mansack, M-A-N-A-S-E-K, called the Treatise on moon maps it's a visual study on paper from 1610 to 1910 now he's only it's only uh uh online he's not going to publish it he's in his 80s and doesn't want to go through the headache and hassle of publishing it um but i'm going to do a review and it'll have the link to his uh, website for free okay. download it's a thick it's uh, about 300 pages a little over 300 pages on maps of that era from 1610 to 1910, uh, what's good and bad and how they uh, drew them, how they etched them or printed them, uh, the telescopes used and the techniques that were used. It's quite uh, fascinating. Whether you're into moon maps or maps of other celestial stuff, it's interesting to learn how these maps were created, the hand-drawn map. Right. As far as he's concerned, photographs of the moon are not maps. They're just photographs. <laughs> but I, I talked to him. But anyway, so I've been the editor since 2004. So we're closing it on with 28 years or so. Um, during, I'm also a member of the California Writers Club. We're the oldest or, or one of the oldest clubs for, for writers. Founded in 1909 by the Friends of Jack London here in Oakland. Oh. and we now have about 22, I think, branches uh, with over 2,000 members. Um, I helped to co-found a Fremont branch because our closest branch was 25 miles each way. And some of our older members didn't want to drive at night, in the especially in the wintertime. So we founded a Fremont branch. 
but also I served as president of the whole California Writers Association oh my. from 2010 to 12. Um, like, so we had our, I just missed being the president during our centennial, mm-hmm. but our branch was chartered in 2009. So we call ourselves the centennial branch. Um, okay. Are you so from, are you from the Oakland area? Well, I'm from Alameda. I was born and raised oh. in Alameda. Okay. So you're a California kid all the way through. Huh? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's nice um, to meet, meet another native Californian. Yeah, we are rare. <laughs> we are rare. We are rare. My, I joke with my wife. She's from Chicago. And each time we have a drought, like we are right now, I said, well, I'm just going to send you back, send you foreigners back to Chicago where you belong. <laughs> there you go. So, so you, you talk about, you talk about writing these books and astronomy. What, was there an event or a person that first sparked your interest in astronomy? I mean, oh, well, you mentioned have, looking looking through your binoculars at the moon, but I would, ha- I would have to say my dad. Yeah. Um, in the 1930s, I think it was around 34, 35, something like that. There was a total eclipse up in Tacoma. Okay. And he and a bunch of buddies hopped in somebody's car. They were still in high school at the time and drove up to Tacoma to see the eclipse. Uh, my dad was very much into astronomy. I mean, well, astronomy is a side act um, to photography and such. And that was one of his main hobbies. And uh, he was also a scout leader. Okay. Uh, member of Boy Scouts for over 70 years before when he passed uh, away. Oh, my goodness. Um, head of the local council and drove my mother crazy because <laughs> council president year after year after year. She was glad when he finally stopped being president, kind of more or less because of her ins- ins- uh, insisting that he n- no longer do it. But he was a scoutmaster all those years. He was my my troop scoutmaster for a while. And, you know, when we go out on hikes up in the Sierras, uh, we would usually hike, you know, camp somewhere where we could see the night sky. And I remember vividly one night watching the uh, Perseids in mm. my sleeping bag, you know, looking out. Um and seeing them. And then again, we saw them on a uh, river raft trip uh, in the mid uh, mid eighties. Uh, we we stopped and we were able to uh, camp in, in an open area along the river. Oh, that's great! Which was interesting. Anyway, um, I continued to write the nomenclature book. When I went back to college for my second BA, I'd gotten laid off at Westinghouse, and they they provided five thousand dollars to as displaced employees as they call them um and so my second ba which was in english literature uh cost me only 75 dollars i used up the five thousand and i paid 75 dollars extra for the ba Uh, (laughs) my first ba is in history okay so um i kept writing the nomenclature book using the library at cal state uh, which is now cal state east bay but at that time it was hayward and I discovered that there had been a nomenclature book produced by the BA, which I mentioned earlier. Um, through interlibrary loan, they got me a copy. I ran upstairs to the copy machine and copied it uh, so I could take it home and found out that Alfonso, Alfonsus was Alfonso X of Spain. Hmm. And he's on the moon because he brought in a whole bunch of scholars to translate these Arabic texts which were actually just translations of Greek and Babylonian texts into Latin for distribution. He had a whole team of scholars doing that. Wow. And that's why he was 
wound up having a lunar feature named for him, okay. a very prominent feature. So, so is that when you look through a telescope, is that one of the first features you look at? Well, it's, if it's visible, I mean, it's, yeah. it, is, it is pretty much in the center right. of the disk. And I mean, you obviously you can't see it the first few days. You, right. You start seeing it as we're getting closer to full moon. Um, once it becomes visible, I uh, have in uh, Luna Cognita, I go by the chapters go by lunation days. Mm-hmm. So the day it becomes fully visible, and I like right now, I forget right offhand which day that is. But that's one of the things in Lunar Cognita is showing you each lunation day. And then that's the first chapters, what I call star hopping cha- or moon hopping chapters, or somebody called them crater hopping chapters. Um, and then I go from full back to new to uh, new moon in one chapter because you have already described all the features. But now when you see them after full moon, uh, things are different. Like uh, as an example, the O'Neill Bridge, which is actually not a bridge, it's just a gap uh, between the mountains on the uh, western edge of Mare Crucium. But in the uh, the lighting just right during the after full moon, it can appear to be a bridge. You can't see it when the sun is shining from the west, you know, the, the uh, during the waxing phases, but you can see it during the waning phases for a couple of days. So I talk about things like that. What's okay. what do you see different between uh, sunrise and sunset? But um, in 2011, prior to 2011, uh, Nick Canass, a friend of mine, um, wrote a book on uh, celestial charts and asked if I would do a review of it for Jalpo. And so I needed a copy and I called Springer. He, Nick gave me the phone number and who to talk to. And they sent me a copy of the book. And I did do a review in Jalpo of his uh, celestial charts, maps and such. Uh, in 2011, there was another Springer book that I wanted to get a copy of. And so I called the, the same number, talked to the same gal. And she said, well, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm writing a big book on the moon. And, and as I thought she was going to die of a heart attack, she said, we're looking for a big book on the moon. Yeah. So I I had a proposal I had sent to Cambridge, and they had turned it down, lucky for me, because I really don't want to talk bad about Cambridge, but they do lousy moon books, um, <laughs> unfortunately. So saving me, I didn't fall into that trap. Although my contract said I had to send them you know, my next astronomy book proposal, which became Luna Cognita. Okay. So actually within a couple of weeks after talking to the gal at Springer, I had a contract. Oh, wow. And at that time, Luna Cognita was only about 1,100 pages. It's now in its published form over 1,800 pages. Um, except for the chapter on drawing the moon, which a few friends supplied me with their words on how they did it. Uh, I wrote the rest of the book basically myself along with help from people like Galileo. (laughs) (laughs) You know, know, everybody using their words and and descriptions and such. Um, So, and then John Westfall wrote the, uh, the foreword. And I do have a picture of John in the book. If you look at that, if you go buy the book and you get, you'll see that John is holding the map with South up because he, when they took that picture, he had had the Luna Incognita program going where they were 
trying to observe the southern hemisphere, the, the southern pole, because lunar observer uh, orbiter, mm -hmm. excuse me, had not filmed that area of the moon. There were big gaps. And so he was trying to, with other people when the southern pole was visible, highly visible, because you know, the moon, it appears to rock, but actually it's because sometimes it's above the ecliptic and sometimes it's below right. the ecliptic. And sometimes it's the point where um, we can see greatly underneath the moon, as you want to say it, or above the moon, depending on whether it's above or below the ecliptic. And so John was a map maker. He was a professor mm -hmm. of uh, geography. Right. And so uh, he, that was a program that he had. So the picture is John holding holding the map, the moon, the globe, upside, you might say upside down, holding with south up. Okay. So um, with Springer, I, I kept writing, uh, adding, and I said, well, how big do you want this in the uh, people at Springer said, well, just write until you've got everything in it that you want to have in it. So the one thing that I uh, was working on but didn't finish, as far as I was concerned, because I ran out of material, was what's um, Appendix M, as in mother. It's dealing with the lunar mansion systems. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff about the Arabic systems and the Chinese systems and the Indian systems. But I came across a Hebrew one, the Kabbalistic one, and I didn't have all the you know full information, and I was really felt bad about not being able to finish that. So at the present time, I have found more books. Um, at that time, one of the people said, "Well, it goes back to King David." Well, no, it actually goes back to the 1650s or so, um, when a man called um, Cornelius Agrippa wrote a book. Uh, the three books on occult philosophy in which he outlined all 28 Hebrew mansion names and such and descriptions. So I found that after I published um, Luna Cognita. So I'm in the process of hopefully making a second edition that I could include a better uh, description of the lunar mansion system. And other things will, will also be... Uh, Published in there. So Luna Cognita. People ask why the weird name. <laughs> well, it's Latin and it means the known moon. Um, okay. You go online and you look up the moon and you'll find hundreds and hundreds of books with the word moon in the title and with a, with a subtitle. And Latin was the language of science uh, from the Renaissance on until late last century or early last century when English and uh, German took over in the late 1800s and then English. Um, but I wanted to kind of give a, um, a shout out to Latin because that was the language of science. There you go. So it's Luna Cognita. A, uh, I've often wondered why it was called that. That's thank you for the explanation. Yeah. Um, it's a comprehensive observer's handbook of the known moon. Mm -hmm. So if they do look for moon and the book pub and the bookseller has included the whole subtitle, it'll it'll pop up. Okay. Um, it sold about four thousand copies so far, uh, both uh, in hardback and uh, ebook. In fact, I was talking um, dealing with Randall Rosenfeld, who's the curator at the uh, 
Royal Astronomical Society of Canada library. And I asked him, I said, do you have a copy of Luna Cognito? He says, yeah, he has a, the electric, he has access to the electric version. So lots of electronic versions were sold to libraries and such, college libraries, university libraries. Um, But it has sold about 4,000 hardbacks. It's three volume. If you order the book from Amazon, you're likely to get only one book instead of all three. They've had a horrible time sending out uh, just one volume to customer one, volume two to customer two, and volume three to the oh, next. Oh, no. One. And they come wrapped with a big notice on them, do not open and whatnot, wrapped in red tape and all of them. And they still break them open and sell them. Um, according to my editor, Springer, they've done that with other Springer books as well. Oh, my goodness. If you order it directly from springer.com, uh, they do not charge shipping and they know how to send out all three books. Okay. Now, the reason it's in three volumes, although I wrote it in InDesign in one volume, is Springer's printing presses can only handle 1,200 pages. So um, with 1,800, they thought, well, okay, we'll divide it into two, a 12 and 600. And they thought, now that's going to look kind of weird. You know, one thick volume, one thin volume. So they decided to split it into three and then add the uh, table of contents, all three volumes. I'm toying with the idea of doing a fourth volume that will cover the far side, but not so much a description of how, you know, what to look for, just describing the craters and okay. uh, stuff like that, who, who they're named for. One of the things that always bugged me personally was all these old books would just say, um, let's say the, the astronomer they want to talk about was John Smith. Well, it would be Jay Smith. Well, who is Jay Smith? So I wanted to make and add the person's name. Okay. I wanted to the full name. Uh, so it might be uh, John Quincy Smith. Instead, they would just put J.Q. Smith, maybe. Um, dealing with the uh, uh, National Geo, with the um, U.S. Geologic Survey, they maintain the database for the International Astronomical Union. This is in Flagstaff, Arizona. And when I got their first list published in 92, it was full of errors. They had the wrong names, the wrong nationalities, the wrong... uh, There was one guy they had there having lived 150-something years because they transposed the last two digits <laughs> of his of his life. And so uh, he went from like 40-something years old to like 80 years old. I mean, about he lived to be about 80. They had him like 120-something. Uh, they also had another person where they transposed the uh, years, and he was like less than 20. <laughs> no. Yeah. So uh, I worked with Jennifer Blue, who was in charge of the database at that time. And um, I sent them over 900 corrections. Um, Wow. There were some that they even had the totally wrong uh, coordinates for, or they had the wrong religion. Actually, we took out all religion references. Mm -hmm. um, And because that was not needed. But uh, they had the wrong nationalities, wrong professions. Uh, it was just it was just a mess, and I did not want that in my book. I did not want the errors. Yep. I so, that's why, 
So that's why I spent the time doing that. So in Luna Cognito, it's as correct as we could be with full names, full Arabic names and all of their titles, which had not been done before. Um, and so for each feature, who it's named for, I give a brief biography of that person. Earlier books would just say, here's Crater A and it's named for so-and-so. And it's so big and it's located. And that was it. Especially the uh, Wilkins and uh, um, uh, Moore, Patrick Moore book from the mid-50s. Uh, and even then, Wilkins got all kinds of names wrong, misspellings and such. And I wrote to Patrick Moore. I communicated with him a number of times. And he said, I had nothing to do with that list. You could talk to Wilkins. <laughs> well, Wilkins had been dead <laughs> 40 years because he died in 1960. Um, so Wilkins washed his hands of, the, of that list. So it took a while for me to finally get all the names on that list correct. There was a, a Spanish author who produced a book on all of the uh, amateur astronomers in Spain. And a bunch of them were names that Wilkins had put on his map, his 300-inch map. There were a handful of them were finally approved by the IAU, but most of them have never been approved by the mm -hmm. IAU. But they're on his map, and sometimes you see them popping up as if they were an official name, and they're not. Oh, wow. The other thing is that um, Donald Menzel, who had, uh, for a time was in charge of producing a set of maps for... Uh, NASA, and he added a whole bunch of names of artists and singers and such, and uh, Pablo Casal, and uh, it was one of them, uh, Maria Callas, and so, so one chapter I talk about his disallowed name, who they were, and such, what features he was trying to name, and he published the maps, even though the IAU had said don't. With, with those names on them, he did it anyway. So it's kind of like the International Star Registry, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, in a way, he he put these names on. Also, um, I need to take a drink for a second. <clears throat> it being the Rand McNally map that I told you about, which was from the 1950s, had these names on it that I couldn't find because they had taken Wilkins' names, some of them. One of them that really bugged me was AMAT up in the uh, northwestern quadrant. And I searched and searched and searched. I finally found he had been a general in Barcelona during the Spanish Civil War. And he had written a book on um, artillery. Uh, a manual on firing artillery, but he was also very much interested in astronomy. And I forget right offhand the astronomy book that he wrote. So I finally, after searching and searching and searching, found out who that feature was named for, but it's not an official name. And that's in my chapter on Wilkins's name. Uh, the other is that, um, that I've added, excuse me, was in my chapter on lunar rays and banded craters. In 1955, the BA had published a list of the banded craters. Then, because the only maps that were really available at that time was Wilkins' map, Wilkins put the designated letter for satellite features in the middle of the crater. 
so you didn't know who that satellite crater belonged to. Um, and so the, 50, the 1955 list had wrong craters uh, designation. I was able to s sort of use the orthographic coordinates that were listed on the Wilkins map, uh, although some people think it's the greatest thing, you know, map ever created. Um, he had an offset on his lines of longitude and latitude from sheet to sheet. They just don't line up. And so it was a real, real problem to try and figure out which feature he was trying to give a name to. And so I, uh, I was able to work with that and a lot with Richard Baum, who brings me up. Richard and I communicated quite a bit. He was from the UK. A proud moment for me is I was on the Walter Haas Award Committee. Walter had appointed me several years in a row. And I came up with, with Richard Baum's name. And it was the first one ever by Alpo, the committee, to be unanimously voted on. Oh, wow. And I don't know if anybody's been unanimous since then. But I, I've been running the committee for the last few years, and no one's been unanimous. Oh, okay. I didn't know who was in charge of it. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, Walter appointed me, which was quite an honor for me. Um, I, I did get to meet him, I guess it was 2011 or 12, I forget right offhand, where we had the convention in Las Cruces. Mm -hmm. And I got to meet him. And I took my copy of uh, Alpo, the Jalpo Act, in those days it was a strolling astronomer, a July 1st, 1947 issue. Uh, although it was like the third or fourth uh, issue, because mm -hmm. that was my birthday. Nah. And so he autographed that for me. So I still have that. I could have taken the March 47, which was the number one issue, uh, but I thought I'd get a bigger kick out of dining. So I did get, so I did luckily get to meet him. And at that convention, they took us to uh, the little shack where Clyde Tumba would uh, polish his mirrors and such which is in the backyard of some condominium there in Las Cruces. Oh, my goodness. So that so, was an interesting trip. So you yeah. me you mentioned uh, your little Tasco ref refractor, your little 60 millimeter, I believe it was. Yeah, yeah. Now, was that your first telescope? Yeah. Yeah? You wish you still had it? Uh, well, it got stolen. Oh, no. <laughs> we were about to move 35 years ago to our current house. We've been here 36 years. And I was using my motorhome like a moving van because I would load stuff up. Mm -hmm. And somebody broke in. I don't remember whether I locked it or not. And the tube was taken. Now, underneath the kitchen table were the legs for the telescope. <laughs> and I had filled them up with buckshot to make you know make them heavy right. and steady because those tascos are so wobbly. Right, right, right. So a year or so later, my wife and I went to... Riverside Telescope Makers Conference, and our daughter was maybe six or seven at the time. She did not go. She stayed with uh, friends. And when I came home, she said, did you buy me a telescope? Well, somebody had the tube for sale for $10, so I bought the tube. So that's I, I, still, have, I still have that telescope. My ex-wife won a Tasco in some dinner or whatever. So she gave me that. Oh. So I have two of those things. Uh, but my main telescope, 
uh, is a um, a Mead Schmidt Cassegrain ten inch. Oh, nice. I also have a eight and a half inch with Browning ref- glass reflector from 1874, oh. 1875. Oh my goodness. The problem is. I don't have the correct size mirror. The gentleman who sold it to me sent me an eight-inch soda glass mirror, uh, and it needs an eight and a half. The way the mounting is to the mirror, it's got to be the right size. Uh. And I've just never gotten around to hunting for an eight and a half because it's an oddball size. But um, I would love to get it back together. Yeah. Problem is, after I had my my major stroke in 2014, my telescope has got gotten exceedingly heavy. I hear you. Uh, I'm very weak on my left side, and so it's difficult for me to try and hold the tube up and mount it on the uh, tripod. So for the last few years, I'm just back to uh, my uh, 15 by 50 Canon uh, binoculars, the uh, image stabilizing binoculars. Although for um, uh, the conjunction of the the Jupiter and Saturn a a year or so ago, Mm -hmm. Um, I took out one of my little Tascos and set it up for the nice. grandkids to look through, had them come nice. over and we, and we set it up so they could see that. And then they used my binoculars to see some other things. Now you, my, sound like, you sound like you're a visual observer that you don't do much. Yeah, I, I, I was never really into photography. Okay. Although I did buy an early CCD camera from Celestron uh, so I could write up about it. Mm. And it was very frustrating to use because you had to take pictures and uh, different exposure times and focus and get it just right and then take the picture you wanted to take. And uh, it was just a lot of hassle. Now people just aim their digital camera skyward and boom, yep. they my pictures. It's, it's, it's uh, the technology nowadays on imagers and the, and the software for processing the images are just really oh, yeah. amazing it's really oh amazing. yeah yeah far so better what i could talk about so I if you had if you had your dream telescope what would it be oh um, well i do have access to uh the 20 inch telescope of chabot there you uh, go okay that's that's <laughs> no, a pretty I, nice telescope to have access to yeah yeah um no i would probably want a, a good a nice little observatory i live on a corner Okay, and so I have street lights almost not directly in front of my house, and street lights down the street. Um, when I did star hopping, I could avoid the street lights by hiding on the side of my house. The tree was small, and I could set up the telescope along the side of my garage and use that. I had a narrow view, but I could do that. Now the trees are so big, I can't even see the sky from that spot. Oh my goodness! Um, but I could still take. Until the stroke, I could take the telescope out and set it up on the lawn because I'm observing the moon, and it doesn't matter how bright it is around you. Right. Um, but I'm also a life member of the Fremont Peak Observatory Association, and we are online. Mm-hmm. We have a 30-inch um, reflector uh, up on the state park there at Fremont State Park, uh, which is uh, about uh 40, 45 miles south of San Jose. I'm, it's 75 miles from my home. I'm about 25 miles from San Jose. And we go up there and show the sky. I've given a few lectures. We have what we call the Starbecue, where we have a barbecue for members. 
Um, and then a lecture. Sometimes we've had guys from Stanford or other universities give talks. Um, and I've given talks on the moon and, and star hopping. Uh, but we show the sky to the general public. We also set up uh, smaller telescopes outside the observatory. We built concrete pads with electricity outlets for, uh, for, the, for the electrical telescopes and such. Um, so I've been doing that since the 80s. In fact, okay. one of my first articles was about the construction of that observatory. Because we used to just go up there and just set up our telescopes in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And in 1980, I guess it was 84, 85, we got permission from the state park system to build an observatory, which is still there. Uh, and Kevin Medlock, who built, right. the 30, he built the 36-inch telescope at Chabot Space and Science Center, which is now called Nelly. Uh, Kevin was a machinist for mm-hmm. Lestron for a number of years. Yeah, I remember running him at running into him a few times up at RTMC. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, he and Denny, his wife, mm-hmm. uh, they were kind of the driving force. Now, the members of Fremont Peak and the members of San Jose, uh, we put money together and purchased a what we thought was only a 72 in diameter test mirror for Palomar. Uh, it had never been uh, figured. Somehow it got shipped down to Tasmania and was still in the shipping crate. And Kevin found out about it. And we put a whole bunch of money together. I forget now how much. And bought the telescope. I mean, bought the mirror. It's only the mirror. Uh, back to California. And lo and behold, it was 72 inches in diameter, not Oof. 70. So the mirror has been figured from a long time ago. And now the telescope is actually, the metal parts are, are almost finished being constructed. Uh, we've had several locations in mind, one of which was at Lick, but Lick wanted to run the telescope uh. in, instead of us. And so we declined that. They had a spot we could have put it up there along with Lick Telescope up near San Jose. So I'm not sure what the, uh, uh, the progress is now in, in finding a place there were some guys who were going to offer uh, a mountain peak uh, or hill peak near Patterson, California, which is on Highway 5. But access and water and electricity was just mm. going to be overwhelming because of undeveloped land. Um, so it could wind up still at Lick. They have the electricity, the space, right. and the water and such. But there's been moves to close Lick. Uh, it's run by the University of California. It's Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. They've talked of closing. Oh, that'd be the, sad. The observatory. Yeah. Wow. Um, so how did you get involved with the ALPA? How did I get what? How did you get involved with the ALPA? Oh, um, because I got I got started doing uh, observing the sun. Okay. Through, uh, through Rick Hill then. Well, I, there was an article, I believe it was in Sky and Telescope or maybe astronomy, I forget which magazine, about an observing program of okay. doing sunspots. And I got in touch with Rick, his, his address or whatever was mm-hmm. involved. There was no email in those days. Right. And uh, he sent me observing forms, and I would be getting the NASA publication of uh, sunspots with their number and mm-hmm. the location and whatnot. And after work, I would, the sun was still shining here. 
uh, put my telescope out. I had the Inconel uh, filter for the front. Okay. And uh, I would draw the sunspots and submit them to Rick. So that was my introduction to Alpo. Okay. Um, now, are you still observing the sun? Uh, once in a while, but not. It's it's like I say, it's still very difficult for me to to drag the telescope out. I hear you. Because of, like I said, I'm very weak on the left side uh, from the stroke. I was basically paralyzed on my left side. Um, and then I had a couple of minor strokes, which one has affected my voice. Is every once in a while, you hear my voice fade away. Okay. Well, you um, sound you sound great. You really do. Yeah. So I so, do observing when I go when I go up to Fremont Peak. We have stayed overnight uh, in the motorhome, and then go down to San Juan Batista. There's a place that used to be called the Donkey Deli. It's now a German um, all-you-can-eat breakfast thing. I kind of like uh, the name Donkey Deli. I don't know. That's <laughs> yeah. It's now Pat and Jack's. It used to be Donkey Deli. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and there were antique. There's antique stores there. And my wife used to love to go to a, a candle shop, which is long gone. Mm. But that's where the mission is there. Okay. Uh, where they filmed uh, Vertigo. Right. Where the scene where Kim Novak falls out of the uh, bell tower. Oh my and goodness. Okay. That was all that was all although she didn't really fall out of the bell tower. Right, right. right. But but that's part of the scenery is uh, San Juan Batista. And uh, so we make a day out of it. Um and so we go there and I can use the telescopes there. And I don't take my scope anymore because there are too many other toys to play with. I hear it. Uh, there's all kinds of other telescopes. Uh, now, with star hopping, I although I my my telescope has setting circles, I never use them because they allows they move. Yeah. The mead, uh, it's just not good. So one night I was up there. I remember clearly I'd set up my my ten inch, and a guy was next to me with a go to telescope when they first came out, and he's trying to set up his machine and having a just struggling with it and i was uh, there was a night that mars was in opposition and so i set up my telescope using the kevin medlock method of just kicking the telescope uh legs to get it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've done i've done that method many times <laughs> <laughs> to polar align it yep and so i've got it <laughs> i'm got you know aimed at mars and this guy is still struggling to get his, you know, settings right and whatnot. Right. And I walked away and I'm looking at other telescopes and whatnot. I come back and Mars is still directly in the middle of the eyepiece. There you go. And I showed the guy and he about died. <laughs> but they just learn how to start out. Go get my book. Yeah, go get me my book. Now, you've been a member of the Alpo for a long time. How, how have you seen it? How have you seen it change over the years? Well, new faces. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen the publication become more professional under Ken. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, now Sean is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, as far as the workings, I think we've become more professional, you might say, as far as the operation of the organization, um, which is normal. I'm also, uh, the vice president of the, Niles SNA Silent Film Museum hmm. here in Niles. Um, and we are still struggling with getting paperwork in order, 
um, although we've been around 15, only 15 years, not 75, um, you know, it's getting job descriptions. We had a executive director. She quit after only a few months. Mm. Um, we've been trying to fundraise. Um, let me back up for a moment. The Nile SNA Silent Film Museum. The SNA was originally founded in 1907 by a man named George Spohr and Bronco Billy Anderson. And instead of just using an S and an A, they made it into a word, SNA. Hmm. Now, in 1912, Bronco Billy brought a film crew out to Niles, uh, California, <clears throat> which is now part of Fremont. For a short time, it was at the actual end of the Transcontinental Railroad. The railroad comes through Niles Canyon, and then it turned north up to Alameda, which is the actual end of the tracks, was in Alameda. And um, then you took a ferry over to San Francisco. Eventually, they went south to San Jose and up the peninsula. But he thought that Niles looked western, had the railroad, had the canyon and such. And so, like I say, he brought the film crew out in April of 1912. Um, the gentleman built a for Edison, Thomas Edison, his film company. They built hundreds of theaters around the country so he could show his movies and make money off the movies. And our building was built in 1913 as a Nickelodeon. We are now the only place that we know of that shows silent films in a theater built to showing movies. Uh, we found the original projection booth with the tin on the floor and the walls and the ceiling and the holes for showing pictures through. Um, a theater in Fremont closed and we were able to get the movie screen from them. Um, in 1919, the owners of the building and the vacant lot next door where a theater had been had burned down, uh, they gave us the building. So we now own the building, and we are in the process of restoring it. It's sitting on brick foundation only a few hundred yards from the Hayward Fall. Luckily, it's never gone. The building was retrofitted a number of years ago because part of it is uh, you know, masonry with bricks. But Charlie Chaplin was here in 1915 for two and a half months, made five movies. And of course, the most famous one was The Tramp. Hmm. So uh, the end of this month on the 25th, uh, we will have our annual Charlie Chaplin days. We show his movies. Huh. Uh, people dress up as Charlie. We have a Charlie lookalike contest. We used to, <coughs> though he's not coming this year, gentleman from uh, Canada comes down in spitting image of Charlie when he dresses up oh, wow. Charlie, but uh, he's not coming this year. So we do have, we do have a photograph of Charlie and his leading lady, Edna Purviance standing next to the house in next door to us. But the camera angle is such that you see the theater, hmm. but we know what the theater looked like in 1915. Uh, the facade has been changed. We're going to restore that as well as restore the building because the plumbing and electrical go back to 1913 and modified over the last hundred years. Who knows what? Uh, there are two apartments upstairs and we know they have water leaks every once in a while. So we know we've got to do that. So, so if you have two and a, two and a half million dollars, you don't know what to do with. <laughs> yeah. We're trying to raise money to restore. Okay. The building. We have permits to put a concrete foundation under it. Um, 
And then in July, we'll do our annual Bronco Billy Film Festival and uh, show his movies and a bunch of others. Fantastic. He was the first uh, American movie cowboy star. He was in the 1903 movie, The Great Train Robbery. He played mm. three, he had three roles in the movie. Um, and he became Bronco Billy, where they put an H in it. So it's misspelled, but uh, we're very close with him. And we own his um, Oscar. Um, one of our very favorite founding ladies played baby Peggy in the 1920. Well, she was 20, 24 months old when she made her first movie. Oh, wow. And she knew people who knew how to get that Oscar. So that was donated to us. So we own, we own Bronco Billy's uh, Oscar that he got in 1950 for wow. Lifetime Achievement. So we do show the films. So I'm interested in that. But it's like I said, the difference between uh, an organization that's 75 years old and one that's 15 years old. Right. It's being organized. We are. That's true. We, you know, we are a, a 50C3 mm-hmm. um, educational organization. And I just find that the organizing being different. Um, and now Alpo with the foundation. Mm-hmm. Trying to build a permanent headquarters. Um, it's something I would I would like. I'm also a member of the Daguerrean Society, and they do have you know headquarters. Yeah. Um, and they're not that old, you know. Yeah. Maybe, well, Bob, you are maybe. one one busy man. You know that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> are you retired? A uh, long time ago. Good. I got I got retired. Yeah. Um, I was working for. ESS Technology, which is a high-tech company, mm-hmm. we made the uh, chips to run the uh, DVDs and uh, audio chips for the PC. So they got started when you remember the you'd have like birthday cards and you open it up and it would have a song or something. Yep, yep. that's when they got started in 1984. Oh, okay. But in the year uh, I in 2002, they got ripped off by a chip maker in in Taiwan took our design and started selling the chips and it's cutthroat. Uh, And so uh, ESS had lost like $40 million. Uh, They laid off 250 of us, which is about half the the sales force. I mean, the the whole force. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was sending out resumes, getting no answers. Uh, One guy said, well, we'll do a phone interview on Monday. I stayed home. They never called me back. And oh, I was out. I didn't have your phone number with me. Yeah. And I never heard from them again. Oh, my goodness. So the blessing in disguise is I just continued writing. That's good. Uh, that's good. You can, you can make a living with your passion. And that's that's amazing. Well, yeah, my, my wife was a retired school teacher. Oh. Um, so we lived off of that. Now pensions and investments mm-hmm. in, in property and such. Um. So we're financially well off. In fact, uh, when we're going to have the um, Chaplain Festival on the 25th, that's our 50th wedding anniversary. Oh, my goodness. Well, congratulations on that. Yeah, I don't know how we survived that. That's quite this. I don't I don't have uh, 50 years with all my four marriages. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, we've we've been to solar eclipse trips. Nice. Uh, We were in Zimbabwe for the 2001 eclipse. Um, and with the, 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 what's a little fascinating was the, um, I'm losing my voice for a second. 
1991 eclipse, our daughter Anne Marie was five when we were on that trip. She passed away hmm. uh, in 2020, but before then, in we went to see the eclipse in 17. Mm -hmm. uh, we were in Oregon, and our granddaughter was five. Uh. She saw it. So the two of them saw their first total solar eclipse when they were only five years old each. Where, where in Oregon were you? We were in Madras. Ah, so was I. I was in oh. Madras. Well, you, should look, you should have looked me up. No. A, a big vacant lot up there. We were all parked in. It was. Crazy. Oh, you were in you were you were in the uh, the northern. Yep. One. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, another friend of mine was up there too. In that. No, we were in the we were at the uh, uh, in town festival. Nice. nice. And uh, so they had a, a big world map on the wall with the push pins. Uh huh. And so you put where you were from, and they there were so many from. California, yeah, it was the pins were out into the ocean. Yeah, that's that's. I remember, I remember that. Yeah, because we went oh, to the festival. That. We yeah. went to the festival for for the yeah. Well, our son-in-law is from Barcelona, ah. and there was one pin <laughs> <laughs> from Spain. There you go. But yeah, we we saw that, and then it took us six hours to go sixty-five miles up to Mount Hood. You know, I, I had a hotel. We couldn't, get, room. we couldn't get out because you guys were blocking the road. I had a I had a hotel rooms a hundred miles south of the eclipse. And I went, oh, we'll hit there in a couple hours. No. It, took, it took us ten hours to go hundred miles. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. The twenty twenty four eclipse. I'm camping at a campsite for five days, so I'm not going to go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know what what we're going to do for that yet. Yeah. Uh, for the for the two eclipses. Yeah. Um. But we'll get the motorhome ready and there you uh, go. take off with the with the family, and uh, so we we because the motorhome we have an American Clipper from 1980, hmm. um, which we've kept. Uh, I didn't have it running right, so we rented a, uh, one of those Cruise America jobbies and took it all the way to uh, oh. Arizona to uh, Kirchner Caverns for a um, star party. Uh, with David Levy and okay. um, Scott Roberts, who I've known for years. Yeah, I know Scott. And David, David, I've known him for David. many, many years. <laughs> yeah, they've yeah. both been on my podcast, yep. Yeah, oh, great, great. Yeah. And uh, so, so we've we've done that. Kathy and I have traveled, uh, let's see, we've been to Mexico for the, for the eclipse. We've been to uh, Greece. Uh, a couple of times we were in the Black Sea for the for the eclipse in '99. Wow! And so you're, then, you're somewhat an eclipse chaser as well, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, once you see a couple of them, you just got to keep going, huh? Well, the '91 eclipse, my parents went with us, hmm. and uh, my dad has his 1936 icon, which is now an icon, uh, where you have a viewfinder on the top of the camera. Uh -huh. He took marvelous pictures. I'm I'm trying to take roll two rolls of film during the seven minutes. And the guy next to me, I said, Well, did you shoot a whole roll? He said, I shot four rolls. Oh my goodness. I never saw him changing the film because I was so intent on what I was doing. Yeah. And and letting everybody look through my camera because I have a 400 millimeter uh. lens. And so everybody, you know, the family was using that. And right after the eclipse, we're sitting in the shade on the side, and there's a pod of dolphins come swimming by us. And you know when you see a dolphin show, they do the backflips? Uh -huh. And you think that's a trained behavior? 
No, the dolphins did that alongside of our ship. Oh, amazing. So I was out of film. Uh, <laughs> I think um, Ed Krupp got pictures of it. Okay. Because he published them in uh, the Griffith Observatory. Okay. Uh, his magazine. Correct. Wow, Bob, this has been fascinating and amazing, and you're quite the guy. I got to tell you, I don't want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Okay, today. one one other thing. Yes, sir. Um, in 2018, my wife and I went to uh, Toulouse, France, for a lunar conference in May of 2018. The day after the conference, I got a notice that um, oh, hold the phone. Um, bam. I got a uh, notice on my computer that an asteroid had been renamed for me. Oh. And it's 31862 Garfinkel. And so I wanted to go to Point to uh, uh, Point uh, the Midi. And so we left and drove up there. They don't open till June 1st. So we got to see the observatory from far off. Um, the thing is, if you go to Spain in May, most of your hotel rooms are not going to be air conditioned because they don't turn them on until right. June 1st. <laughs> so that happened in a couple of hotel rooms. Oh, my goodness. So anyway, yeah, we've enjoyed our trips. Nice. Um, uh, enjoyed Greece, seeing the Parthenon, enjoyed uh, the Black Sea. Seeing Odessa, yeah, it's fun to travel. Much tied, you know, the well, we went to Yalta uh, to see you know, part of the trip. But yeah, we've uh, been around the world. We haven't been to Asia yet. We we missed any uh, eclipses there. Oh, you're still but, young. Go get to go do it. <laughs> well, the health reasons are going to hold us up from now. So anyway, yes, yeah, it's been a joy. Yes, it has. I do want, I do want to say, anybody listening, if you have astronomy books that come out or you buy some that you recently published, please send me a review. My address is in the Jalpo. I would love to get more reviews. Uh, they come in uh, once in a while uh, and we look them over and uh, get them published. Great. So, so I'm putting that plug in because I do need more reviews all the time. But anyway, Tim, uh, thank you for asking me to, uh, do the podcast. I appreciate it. And oh, it was, wish it everybody was a, good hunting, uh, observing the sky, clear skies. Although for the lunar eclipse last month, we got clouded out. Uh, we had a beautiful view down here. No, we got clouded out. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that. No, nope, it happens. Yeah. All right, Bob. Well, this has been fun. Thanks for coming yep. on. Thank you. Alrighty. Okay, bye. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I again want to thank our special guest, Bob Garfield Funkel, for coming on the podcast today. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. And you can also listen to us now on Apple Radio, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon Echo, Spotify, podcast is also available on our YouTube channel. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon. You can give as little as $35 a month. As a producer of the podcast, I'd like to thank Steve Seentop and Michael Murray for their generous support. 
The link for Patreon as well as the link for the Alpo is in the show notes. If you'd like to get a hold of me, my email address is cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at at ObserversNBPod. Until next time, I hope that you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening. <laughs>